Thank you, Alan. Good evening, everyone. Yes, at least three people are awake. Someone asked me the question this morning, how do we um, enhance or uh, lift up the worship life of our congregation as we come together? And the answer to that is, draw us close to God. And I thank you, Alan, for drawing us close to God this evening as part of our worship. It has been terrific to be able to sing together. I, I have to satisfy my curiosity and ask the question, how many laps did you end up doing, Anna? Okay. I was not expecting such a well thought through answer. <laughs> Fantastic. How about you, Luke? Well done. And Charity? Does anyone top 62? Zoe? Macca? Macca, how many did you do? Well done, Macca. Any other centurions amongst us? No, well, Macca, you take the prize, but keep your hands off the chicken. It's a trained killer. The chicken, I'm not going to tell you about the chicken just yet. That's, you'll just have to wait for that. All, all things will be revealed in good time. Hey, um, Darren, thank you too for the kind of segue into the message tonight because um, in thinking about holidays, um, I wanted to talk about how our family holidays when I was a young person, my brother and I were only uh, kids, you know, early teenagers, our family holidays were adventure holidays. We did not go to the Gold Coast theme park kind of stuff. We didn't go just sit in chairs on the beach. We went bush, seriously, out into the bush. And our family was into gemstone collecting. And so we had our own shovels, our own rock hammers, and, and we were just kind of sent off in the bush. Now, gemstone collecting is good up to a point, but when you're 12 years old, it gets a bit boring after a while. Um, you know, you dig a certain number of holes or you scratch around looking for stones. After a while, uh, boys will be boys and so we would go off into the bush and, uh, and we would light little fires, or uh, safely of course, um, not, we, we wouldn't do that in summer. Um, if there was um, a rabbit hole somewhere, we would dig out the rabbits, you know, we'd put a lot of work into excavating rabbit burrows back in the days when there were lots of rabbits. And uh, one of the favourite places we would go to was just over here behind Beechworth, Woolshed Valley, you know, Reedy Creek down that way, El Dorado direction. Uh, we spent many, many hours there messing around in the creek. My father loved to pan for gold and we'd do a bit of that for a while, but after a while that would get a bit tedious as well. And so my brother and I would do exciting things like damming up the creek. That's where we learnt some of our civil engineering skills and uh, doing that sort of... You know, Dad used to say to us, how come I cannot get you boys to keep your room tidy but you will shift two or three cubic metres of gravel just for fun? <laughs> we would work for hours building these retaining walls and stuff. One of the best fun activities was actually changing the course of the creek. Have you ever done that? It's fun to do that. 
you've got to pick the spot. It's no good doing it somewhere where there's too many rocks. You've got to pick a spot where there's lots of gravel. And, and here's how you do it. Say the creek's running down the left-hand bank, okay? Your left hand, not my left hand. Uh, the left-hand side of, its, of the stream bed. You want it to go the other side, so you'd start excavating a new channel. You kind of dig it out dry. You just keep moving gravel, you move gravel, chuck it over, chuck it over, chuck it over, until there's just a little bit left. And then you open it up and the water just starts to trickle. Then you start damming the other side up so that what happens... How am I going, Robert? You're an engineer. Is this making sense to you? Very good sense to an engineer. What would happen is that eventually the flow going down this side, the left-hand side of the stream bed, would be diverted to go down the right-hand side. And at first what happens was that the flow would be kind of muddy, you know, the, the disturbed soil, it would be... You guys have done this, right? You've seen this happen. If you haven't done this, uh, we, we need to do this one Saturday just for some fun, you know. <laughs> youth, youth and young adults, change the course of history, uh, <laughs> shift a creek in its stream bed. Uh, wouldn't take long, if there was a decent flow of water, for it to start running clear. And then over the next couple of days, if you didn't kind of mess around with it, if you went away and came back, you'd look and you'd say, that's where the stream's been all the time. Suddenly there's this new normal that's flowing through. Uh, what had been there before has been changed. There's a new uh, stream bed, a new kind of uh, a normal situation. And in some ways that is um, representative of what happens in life too. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. Because there are lots of transitions that happen in life where there's a change from this to this. Uh, there might be a change that's forced or a change that's chosen or something that happens, uh, some disequilibrium, if you like, in the circumstances. It actually changes life from what was normal to a new normal. Take, for example, getting married. Those of you who are married will know there's a transition that's taken place between being single and being married. And I can remember uh, when Diana and I were married 30 or so years ago, uh, we had been dating for about five years. And I think I've told you the process. Diana came and lived with my parents in Melbourne. I lived with her parents in Haywood. We checked out the in-laws first so that you, know, you knew what you were kind of getting into. And, and then after five years of singleness, dating from a distance, because for a lot of that time we lived a fair way apart, uh, we got married, we went on our honeymoon and in our honeymoon... We went to some pretty exciting places in our honeymoon, let me tell you. Bendigo... <laughs> that was pretty good. Echuca, El Dorado, can you believe that? Honeymoon Central. And while, while we were in El not in El Dorado, while we were in, uh, in Echuca, I can remember, I actually got quite sick. Um, <laughs> nothing to do with getting married. Um, it suddenly struck me, this is the new normal. This, uh, this woman who I have married, this person I've been dating for five, suddenly we're going to be together. This is the new normal. And that was a little bit of a shock in a way. Kind of been anticipating it, planning for it, looking forward to it, but now it was a reality. And then for a couple of years we just enjoyed life as a couple. We did our things as a couple. We were both working. We were living together down there in um, Hayfield, down in Gippsland. Diana was working in sale. I was working in Hayfield. Uh, then we moved uh, to another part of the state up in the northwest, and then guess what? A baby came along. How did that happen? Don't tell you. <laughs> I know how that happened. 
But the point is, this is not the passage I'm going to talk about. It's not, we're not here to talk about sexuality. Um, what had been normal as a couple, suddenly that normal was challenged and changed. There was a baby. It's the new normal. And we got used to that. A new kind of set of relationships. And then as the family changed, uh, that what was once normal became challenged, changed and a new normal. Now, you understand what I'm saying. There's stuff that happens all the way through life. You're travelling along, it's normal, something changes and you enter into a season of a new normal or a changed kind of environment. It happens all the time. It happens if you change jobs. It's going to happen to some of you who have been spending the last 13 years or so in the school environment because you're about to leave it for the last time. A new normal will happen and it takes a bit of getting used to that. There's something new, something different, something that you've got to kind of grow into. Why am I talking about this? Well, I'm talking about this because the passage that we're going to look at tonight from Colossians, you'll see it here on the screen behind me from Colossians chapter 3. Paul is talking about a new normal in relationships. And he speaks about five critical relationships that we have that are changed when we come under the Lordship of Christ. Five very intimate, very personal relationships that are changed totally from what was one kind of a normal to a new kind of a normal, a new pattern for living, if you like, because of the Lordship of Christ in our lives. We're going to unpack what they are and uh, so that you know which passage we're looking at, we're actually going to have a look at the passage up here on the screen, if I can just advance that slide. Whoops, too far. Let's just go back one. Sorry, Oliver, I might have fooled you there. You might have to do it manually because I'm not getting any joy out of our clicker tonight. Let's go to the passage. It's from Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, and we'll leave this on the screen for a little while. Uh, An important passage that we're going to uh, unpack this evening. Unfortunately, in uh, the Bible that I've got here, there are some very helpful people who've put headings in uh, the scriptures and the heading says rules for Christian households. I don't like that heading. Nevertheless, under that heading, here's what Paul writes. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Masters, Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. So as I said a moment ago, Paul raises with this Colossian church, a church that he has been writing to, highlighting the centrality of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in life, five important interpersonal relationships that he wants to speak about, the relationships between wives and husbands, Husbands and wives, fathers and children, slaves and masters, and masters and slaves. Now, you might think to yourself, well, we can ignore the last couple there, slaves and masters, masters and slaves, because we don't live in a time of slavery, do we? However, 
understanding the original context and what uh, the passage meant for those who originally heard it meant that we can make good application and I believe we can actually make some good application from this passage, perhaps not in terms of what it means to look after our slaves or to be slaves, but what does it mean in a context where we might be an employee or an employer? There's some applications that we can make from that, so we'll have a look at that uh, in a few moments. Now, it's true to say that earlier in this, uh, in this letter, Paul actually uh, gave the Colossian Christians lots of advice uh, and some advice about relationships, but these are five really significant ones and critical because these are relationships that are a little different to other relationships. These relationships are relationships that are lived out in homes. So why is that important? It's a good question. You know, it might uh, talk about love one another in the context of the church or whatever it might be. What about loving those in your home? This is significant because uh, one of the things that Paul would want to say is the manner in which you relate to those you are closest to or most proximate to is perhaps one of the clearest demonstration of what your heart is really like. Did you catch that? The manner in which you relate to those you spend the most time with is often a very good reflection on what your heart is really like. So, for example, if you really want to know what I'm like as a husband, who should you ask? Me. No, you should ask my wife because she's lived with me. If you want to know whether, um, as a father, there are times where I go into my children's room, it's probably a bit late for this now, the youngest one's 18, uh, back in the day I'd go in and I'd just throw all their stuff around and get angry with them. I might say, no, I never did that, but they might say, well, actually, Dad did that all the time. You? Well, actually, I didn't, did I? No, I didn't. Um, just want to get that clear. But they might say there were actually times when Dad said, if you don't clean up your room, I'm coming in with a wheelbarrow and I'm taking it out. And there were actually times when uh, we said, you know, if you don't look after your stuff, we're just going to collect it up in a big box and we did that. You can get it back on Saturday. You're going to lose that stuff. You see what I'm trying to say? Uh, those that we are closest to are the ones who can give us the most honest representation of our relationships. And Paul wants us to understand that if we are truly living under the authority of Christ, if we're truly living under the headship of Christ, then Christ-likeness will be demonstrated in these places too. And all too often, it's behind closed doors where uh, unchrist likeness is demonstrated. You just think about that in terms of domestic violence and all that sort of stuff. There's an awful lot of people in our community who parade around, and perhaps some, sadly, in the church, who will parade around publicly uh, looking good, sounding good, but when they're behind closed doors, it's not good. Paul actually says in this passage... Your submission to Christ will be reflected in these most intimate relationships, the relationship with your wife, your husband, your children, those that you oversee or are overseen by. So let's have a look at these in turn because uh, there are some minefields that we need to walk our way through and probably the biggest potential mine is found here in verse 18 where Paul says, wives submit to your husbands. Now, it's not unusual uh, in dealing with this passage for, for people 
uh, sitting in the congregation asking the question, what will the preacher say about this passage? You know, where does he or she stand on something like this? And certainly in our time, in our uh, cultural context, that idea of submission is not a popular term, is it? Who wants to submit to anyone? And before we talk about what Paul might have been meaning in this passage, it's actually really helpful to realise that Paul uses the same word for submission here in Colossians as he does in Ephesians 5.21 where he says to the church, the whole body of Christ, submit to one another. So hold that for a second. Paul says to us all, we are to submit to one another. The same word Paul's used here and he says, wives, submit to your husbands. So it's not something unique that Paul is saying that women have to do that no one else has to do. It's a corporate responsibility that we have to one another in the church. It's a responsibility that a wife has before her husband. And note too that Paul does not say wives obey your husbands as he does in verse 22 about slaves obeying their masters. Now that word submits tricky. It's been debated and probably misunderstood through the ages but essentially it means accepting your place and role in a relationship. Accepting your place and role in a relationship. Now Darren, I've asked you if you wouldn't mind just coming up the front here for a second with me and uh, just stand with me. Now, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I'm not going to ask Darren a question. I'm not even going to get Darren to do any talking unless he's so inclined to do. Uh, but <laughs> you can come close. I'm not going to eat you or anything. Um, <laughs> Darren and I. How old are you, Darren? 51. 51. He's just a few years uh, younger than I am. We're very similar in age. As far as, um, as other qualities go, we're both guys, we're both good-looking, we're both, uh, you know, talent. Yeah. Thank you, Saxon. Appreciate your affirmation. There's a few others that are questioning the good-looking bit. But, you know, I had people come to me earlier tonight and say, you are looking really good tonight. Matt, is, Matt sort of encourages to do that. Uh, but, but anyway... Yeah. <laughs> Here's the question. Think before you answer. Are we equal? It's not a trick question. Anna, what do you reckon? Yes, absolutely. In terms of many of the things that we share in life, we're absolutely equal. We both have licence that we're allowed to drive on the highways in Australia. We have freedom to go wherever we like. We're allowed to choose the kind of things we're going to eat for tea. We are equal in lots of ways. I will treat Darren as an equal. I will respect him as an equal and that is reciprocated, right? So we are equals. Are you happy with that premise? You're okay with that? Does anyone want to argue with that? Because uh, Darren and I will knuckle you if, if you know. But it's true. We are equals in many respects. And in the same way, if I grabbed any of you up this evening, I might, for instance, ask Danielle to come and stand here. Okay, we've got some differences, but we are equals in many other ways, right? But there is an occasion when I will submit to Darren. You see, when Darren gets together with the other members of the leadership team of our church, he puts on a hat, he puts on a hat of leadership team member and I as the senior pastor actually operate in submission to that team. And so if that team says, as they might from time to time, David, we would really like you to put some energy into this project or this activity or whatever it might be, 
I will say, sure, if that's what you as a team would like me to do because I am operating in submission to uh, the desires of that team. Now, they're not going to rule over me or lord it over me or treat me in a, in a shabby kind of a manner, I hope, <laughs> and you would hope not to, you would have issues if that was the case. So we are at once equals but there are certain roles in which we perform where I will act in submission. Does that make sense? So equality and submission are not mutually exclusive. You can be equal with someone but also submit to them. Thank you, Darren. And so as we talk about this role that um, Paul is speaking about here with wives, he's not saying to wives, you are somehow to be kind of considered less than your husband, not for one second. But in your role, you are, are, are submitting and what that submitting looks like, well, we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, is really actually uh, something that you have to figure out before God. It is certainly not uh, for a husband to say, you know, you are not as important to me, you don't have a voice, you don't have a role uh, like mine or anything like that, nothing of that nature. Uh, what Paul was wanting to say here is in terms of wives, submit to your husbands, live out your purpose and role in that relationship in a healthy kind of a way. Recognising your responsibility, wives, to serve Christ in the context of your role as a wife. That's a wonderful place to be in a healthy marriage relationship. Paul never ever thought, and this is important to catch this, Paul never thought that being a woman was somehow inferior although it's true to say in Jewish culture that was a very common thought. Nor did he think that a woman uh, could, uh, sorry, nor did Paul ever think that being a woman could in any way hinder a wife from becoming mature in Christ. Absolutely, a woman can become mature in Christ in her role as a wife. He did assume that the social structure of the time could be a place where a woman expressed herself as a Christian and she should, within her marriage, fulfil her responsibilities to the best of her ability, be everything that God wanted her to be. Now, there's another statement here. A wife, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is a very important statement, critical, because uh, in some ways that statement is a, is a charter of freedom, if you like, as is fitting in the Lord. It means that wives are allowed to determine what submitting to their husbands actually looks like in practice. It means that a wife has to figure out what does it mean to submit as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the stuff that used to be around in the 1950s. Some people trot it out as a kind of an entertaining little uh, illustration, you know, advice for wives. When your husband's coming home from work, he will be tired... So make sure that the house is tidy, that there is a nice drink ready for him, that the children are washed and clean and polite and quiet and that his slippers are ready by his chair so that he can sit down and relax as soon as he gets home. You know that kind of advice? Have you ever heard that? Doesn't happen in my house. <laughs> and I'm really glad about that too. But here's the thing, if you, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what Paul says, you've, you've got to figure out, wives, what this means, or, or ladies, those of you who will get married sometime, what does it mean to submit as is fitting in the Lord? If you were to convert to Islam, it's much clearer because there's a whole list of instructions about how wives are to live uh, in the Islamic religion, how your behaviour is to be regulated, how you are to act in response to your husband. 
but the Christian religion does not do that. In the case of submission, whether it's submitting to one another, as Paul says we are to do, or whether it's submitting to husbands for those who are wives, it's to be, a done, it's to be done in a manner that is fitting in the Lord and that will look quite different in different contexts. What does it mean in your context? That's something you have to figure out. What does it mean to honour God in your relationships? Now, while we're on the topic of submitting, let me just make a couple of other comments just to um, torpedo some potential misunderstandings. While we're talking about submitting, here are some things that submitting is not. And I speak to wives, but more broadly to others as well. Submitting as is fitting in the Lord does not presume superiority or inferiority. If you submit to someone else, as I do to the leadership team, it doesn't assume that they are somehow superior to me or I am inferior to them, not at all. Nor does that apply in a marriage. Submitting as is fitting in the Lord would never mean a wife allowing her husband to draw her into illegal or immoral activities. A wife is never obligated to follow her husband into sin. Submitting does not mean adopting a passive role or suppressing creative energy in a relationship. I haven't talked much about passivity. Uh, we're going to talk about that next year at some stage, what passivity is all about. It's one of the greatest blights of our age, particularly for guys. But uh, submitting as a wife doesn't mean just being passive and being a doormat. Submission doesn't mean that a wife must remain silent or never make requests or even agree with everything a husband said. Such a condition in a marriage would be unhealthy and toxic, potentially. Submission, as we submit to one another, submission in marriage is uh, something that will take on a different shape in every relationship, but Christ will be at the centre of it for both parties when submission is properly lived out. Now, Paul started with wives. He made just that one statement to wives, but he also takes aim at husbands here and, uh, and makes uh, some really significant statements about that because husbands have obligations too. This new relationship that you have with Christ means some differences when you're a guy in a marriage as well. Love your wives, Paul says, and do not be harsh with them. Uh, the, the word love here again is the same as the word love in John 3.16, that God so loved the world, the same love you are to express to your wife. Now, of course, in Paul's day, households uh, operated quite differently. The guys were considered in the Jewish, even in the Greco-Roman context, as, as the ruler of the household and a wife was actually treated as property, not as a partner. It was a man's world and to be frankly honest with you, women suffered terribly because of it. It's not a place you'd want to go to in history. But in Paul's letters and in the case of this verse, Paul actually revolutionised the way this whole understanding of husband's responsibility was framed because he affirmed, husbands, you're not to own your wives, you're not to rule over your wives, you're to love your wives. A totally radical concept for its time. What does loving your wife look like? Well, it's not... Uh, making their life a misery or uh, just putting them in some sort of subservient role, it's totally different to that. In a world where the characteristic role of a husband was absolute authority, Paul commanded Christian husbands to express tender 
wholehearted and sacrificial concern towards their wives. And in fact, again, if you turn to um, Ephesians, where Paul is speaking to husbands and wives, he says to a husband, you're to love your wives. Do you remember what he says? As Christ loved the church. And we know what Jesus did for the church, right? He gave up his life for the church. Husbands, you are to be in a place where you're prepared to give your life for your wife. That's radical for its time. And then Paul moves on, if you're looking at the passage here with me, to verse 20 and 21, to speak about parents and children. And again, if uh, there was a time in history that you want to go to, this is not the place to go to if you're a child because children were considered to be the property of their fathers. Even to the point where if, uh, if they displeased their fathers, they could be sold. Even beyond that, in fact, if the displeasure was so great that selling wasn't considered serious enough, a father even had the right to kill a child. That's pretty nasty. Some of the fathers in the room are thinking, gosh, if only. No, they're not thinking that at all. Not at all. That was probably unfortunate. I'll, uh, we'll take that back. <laughs> but that's how serious it was in those days. And here comes Paul and what does he say? Children, obey your parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. So there's this uh, instruction to obedience. But then verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Fathers, you're not just to rule it over your kids. You're to build them up. You are to empower them. You are to help them be the very best that they can be. And it's a reminder to us, obeying your parents in everything because this pleases the Lord. We are to live in this relationship of obedience because obedience ultimately is owed to God. And then Paul speaks about slavery and this is where we might say to ourselves, well, um, this doesn't say much to us. In fact, it might even be a little bit jarring because uh, one of the questions that I've been asked from time to time is this, why didn't Paul just come out and say slavery is bad? Why does he actually seem to enable it? It's not unusual to hear critics of Christianity say that Paul did little to stop this terrible treatment and so hold Christians to account for the fact that slavery continued for another 1,700 years after this was written. And yet we understand as we read this in the context that Paul was writing that he was subtly undermining some of the premises that slavery was built on and in fact uh, what Paul does in undermining it was actually built on later on by those who did a work of undoing slavery. We talked earlier in the year about people like William Wilberforce, a Christian man who argued for the abolition of slavery. But Paul here uh, takes issue with this idea that was dominant in the culture that some people are superior and some people are inferior. And he encouraged the obedience of a slave as an expression, as an expression to a family group. Uh, slaves weren't even afforded um, the dignity of being considered human. In many cases, they were treated worse than animals. But Paul says, no, they're morally responsible beings, affording them, giving them self-respect that was largely unknown. And his encouragement for slaves to work with all their hearts as they're working for the Lord, not for men, was, for his time, 
a magnificent affirmation of personhood. It was a great stamp of approval for these people who were often treated as subhuman. And we did talk about this uh, when we talked about Jesus, the Game Changer series. We talked about people like Wilberforce who argued and argued and argued, even to the point where he ultimately passed away, perhaps uh, partly through the stress of it all, uh, that slavery should be abolished. And we also talked about something else that we find here in this passage uh, way back there towards the start of the year, uh, a question that um, can be framed with, this, with these statements. What will you be doing tomorrow? Where will you be? Who will you be with tomorrow? Because in this passage, in verse 23, Paul says, whatever you do, wherever you go, whatever happens to be your lot tomorrow, work at it as though you are working for the Lord. Work at it with all, in, all sincerity uh, because you are working for the Lord and not for men. The encouragement of this verse is a really significant one because this verse has the power to transform even the most mundane task. We were praying before the service and one of the things that we were praying about or praying for uh, were those of you who are undergoing exams, whether HSC or VCE or IB or whatever it might be. Can you actually do an exam for the Lord? The answer is yes, you can. We were praying that God would honour the work that's already preceded what's going in, that whatever happens in that exam will be done as though it's being done for God. And the power of this verse actually can transform the way we think about just about anything, no matter what it is that we do, no matter what our vocational context, no matter what work environment we might go into, if we go into it with a view of saying, here I am, I'm going to serve the Lord in whatever I'm doing, it's a powerful way of changing our thinking. And it breaks down one of the big problems that we have in our society. This is a problem that's, uh, that's <clears throat> typically uh, expressed in, uh, in the Christian faith and that is a, a divorce between the sacred and the secular. Does that make sense? We compartmentalise our life. Here we are on Sunday doing the God stuff but tomorrow we do the other stuff. But that's not the way the scripture wants us to understand life. It wants us to understand that everything is the God stuff. Years ago, I've told this story to a couple of people, we had this brilliant idea for uh, uh, connecting our church with the community and so I said to our leadership team, how about we get involved in Clean Up Australia Day? We'll take the whole church out and we'll join with our community in cleaning up, um, cleaning up Australia, well, our part of Australia anyway. And uh, the idea will be that we'll rub shoulders with people, we'll talk to people, we'll say, hey, we're from the Baptist Church, you know, we're out here because we want to help you make sure our community is a great community. And so uh, we, had a, we had a problem, though, because it was Sunday morning. What do you do? Sunday morning, clean up Australia Day. We made a very courageous decision, I think, to actually cancel church. Close the doors of the church. Goodness, that's heresy, isn't it? And we took the whole congregation outside with trailers and rubbish bags and gloves and sticks and stuff and we spent the whole day picking up rubbish. But there was one couple in the church who made it their business to complain to me and they said, David, don't you know that Sunday is the Lord's Day? <coughs> and I said, you know what, I always thought every day was the Lord's Day. There you go. I didn't know that it was only Sunday that it was the Lord's Day. 
Now, I was being sarcastic, but it's true. Sometimes we compartmentalise our lives. We think this is the God stuff, this is the other stuff, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. This is not what this Scripture teaches. For here in verse 23, whatever you do, doesn't matter what it is, picking up rubbish, working on an assignment, going into an exam, turning up at a, a, a whatever it might be, the gym, working on a process line, teaching in school, take your pick. All of it can be done to the glory of God. And Paul concludes with some advice to slaves here and masters. He talks about um, the relationship um, between those two uh, slaves obeying your earthly masters and masters in chapter 4. This is one of those places where whoever divided up the chapters and the verses got it wrong. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you have a master in heaven. I think the application we can make from this is a really good one. For those of you who have responsibility for overseeing others, think about how that's exercised. Because it's not a role that you can use to throw your weight around. It's not a role to be abused. I remember uh, a guy I worked for some years ago. I was working on a farm for a number of years. Uh, He was the guy who actually owned the place. My exalted title was manager, farm manager, really. It was just a labouring job, but it was heaps of fun. And on this particular day, let me just give you a little background. Um, Glenn was a Christian guy and we got on well. He was a good boss. This is why he was a good boss. He would actually walk me through processes. One time he said to me, David, I want you to repair that ride-on mower. It needs new rings in the um, pistons. Who's replaced rings on pistons and stuff before? Not me. I said, i got no idea how to do this. He said, don't worry, just walk through it, I'll help you. And he did that. We dismantled the thing, I pulled it all apart, he told me how to do it, we repaired it, and guess what? When the mower started up, it ran properly. But on this particular day, we were working in the shed, we had a very big shed, probably as big if not bigger than this auditorium. Uh, We were processing fruit, all that sort of stuff. I'd driven a tractor into the shed, I had dropped off a uh, what's known as a, a bin forks off the back, so it's kind of like just a set of forks that go on the three-point linkage that lift up fruit bins. You know what fruit bins are like? Uh, and you could just carry a fruit bin on the back of the tractor. I dropped the forks off, they were just sitting on the ground. Almost uh, as soon as that had happened, Glenn said, look, we need to get that tractor out of the way, we've got a load coming in. So I jumped on the tractor, I looked back, I saw the bin forks behind me, I thought, oh, that'll be all right, I'll just drop the, uh, the, the linkage arms and I'll push it out of the way. Great idea, bad outcome because instead of just pushing it on the concrete, the bin fork twisted up and the bin fork's got two little pins that go on the linkage arms. If you've got any idea about farms, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, The two linkage arms um, have the pins, the pins are held in place by the linch pins. It twisted and one of those pins just went boom, straight through the side of the tractor tyre. Now the tractor tyre, you've got to understand, was full of water because... Well, that's kind of what you do with tractor tires. You fill them up to give the tractor some weight. And suddenly, not only did we have a puncture, we had water going everywhere. Now, what would a boss do in a situation like that? Some would have just gone ballistic. What did you do that for? How come you didn't think you should not allow you? There was a thousand things Glenn could have said, but he came over and said, hey, listen, this is not good. We've got a puncture here. Uh, let's just get the bin fork out of the way. Get that tractor out of the shed as fast as you can before the tyre's too deflated to actually drive on it and we'll work it out later on. And he walked me through the process. He could have docked my pay. He had every right to do that. He could have gone mad. He had every right to do that, but he didn't. 
He demonstrated something really significant that Paul is pointing to in this passage where he's talking about masters or people who are employing others. He displayed grace. And for the next uh, day or two after that, we visited just about every farm in the district looking for a tyre that would suit the size. We found one. Actually, we found two. We bought them. $800 later, we had new tyres on the tractor. And did I learn the lesson? Absolutely. Never try and drive over a bin fork again. But that's the thing Paul's saying to, uh, to these Christians. This relationship that you have with Christ will change the relationship that you have with those that work for you. And that was true of this guy. He was a different man because of his relationship with Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. And my relationship was different with him because of my relationship with Christ. I served in that job, as in any job, as I was serving Christ. And so too, my relationship with my children and likewise my children with me, my relationship with my wife and likewise my relationship with me. It's the new normal when we live under the Lordship of Christ. And that's the challenge of this passage. As Christ is King of our lives, it changes our most intimate relationships. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we live that out and uh, as next week we conclude our study in Colossians and hear how Christ calls us to live in empowering relationships in another way. Father, we want to thank you that um, yeah, your lordship actually transforms just about everything that we have in life, the way we think about our money, the, think, the way we think about our resources, the way we think about um, the use of our time and as we've been reminded tonight... It transforms our most intimate relationships, those that we live out in our homes, in our workplaces. Help us to reflect the grace and love of Christ, we pray. Help us to be uh, courageous enough to examine ourselves and ask, where is it, Lord, you want me to be shaped to be more like Christ? Where is it in my life that has not yet been submitted fully to Jesus? Where is it that I need to allow you to shape me, to mould me, to sand off the rough edges, so to speak? Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to do a work of transforming us to be like our Saviour Jesus. We thank you again for your word. We thank you for the promises of your word that you are with us. Help us this week, we pray, to be Christ, to serve because we are serving Christ and to love with the love of Christ. We ask in your name. Amen.